PowerPoint. There we go. Welcome to St. James. It is a delight to have us all together physically and spiritually wherever you are and whenever you are watching because we believe God's Spirit is big enough that time isn't an issue and space isn't an issue and it is an opportunity to be connected wherever we are. I love seeing the faces I get to see in person and I love knowing that there are faces in at least 26 uh, states in the United States and many countries outside of the United States who join us for worship at some point during the week. So it's a delight. It is a delight to know you are here and there and everywhere. And so is the Spirit of God. I'm James Henry. I'm the pastor here at St. James on the west end of Alexandria, Virginia in the United States. And uh, that just happens to locate me in this moment. But uh, we welcome you. We welcome you and want you to know that each of you matters. Uh, as I like to say, sort of a phrase that uh, the universe gave me at some point, you are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved for the gift you already are. Uh, and so I hope that you know that about yourself and that you can live from that place. Today we are turning uh, our eyes in the Gospel of John to the story of a woman who comes to see Jesus unexpectedly. She doesn't expect to see him. I don't know if he expects to see her, but they have an encounter at a well. From my own experience, I think that one of the hardest things for us is to really, really learn and believe that we are loved already. Uh, I had a wonderful conversation with my parents yesterday uh, every conversation with them is in one way or another wonderful. Uh, that they are still on the journey with me. Dad at uh, 94 and mom at 88. Yes, I said their ages out loud. Um, and yes, I will probably hear about that. Um, but I do it all the time, so eventually they'll just get used to it. Um, but as I have lived a life with my parents, I have always pretty much known from them, I was loved. It was when I stepped outside the house into the rest of society, you know, kindergarten and first grade, when it seemed like love was something that you could give or receive, and it was very fickle in the way it was presented. If you wore the right clothes, if you said the cool things, if you were the funny one in class, if you, uh, if you could read as well as everyone else, but not too much better because then people didn't like you. And if you could uh, do all right in class, but not so well that you got recognized and everyone else would dislike you, or so poorly that you had to have special help. If you could be somewhere in the middle and just kind of fit in and, and be sort of a nobody. Maybe you could find love out there. But it wasn't really love, it was indifference. It was kind of an indifference that we seem to, and we're afraid to believe that we are loved no matter what anybody else says to us. No matter how ugly they might be, no matter how they might, um, and love becomes a power game in America. I'm gonna withhold my love from you. And in so doing, I'm gonna, uh, make you do what I want you to do, or else you don't get my love. That's called conditional love. And by the way, conditional love is not God love. That is very human, selfish love. 
I'm going to love you as long as you do what I want. If you don't do what I want, I'm not going to love you. That is not God's love. And that's not what God's way of loving. So if we can learn, and here's why I think we practice that holding love back and, and using it as a control tool, because we can't believe we are loved. We, we can't believe that. Even as I say it to you right now, there's a part of you, I suspect, that doesn't believe me. You are loved. You are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved as the person you already are. Not as the person you'll become, not as the dream person you imagine yourself to be, not even as the person you imagine God hopes you'll become. Because you see, God doesn't withhold love until later. God gives it now because God's love changes things. It changes the world in which we live. In fact, it's the very foundation. One of my favorite uh, mystics from the 20th century, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, said that love is the very fabric of all that's made. That from the beginning, the way the universe was constructed was with love. So, having said all that, we're going to meet a woman today. And by the way, I've already decided that to do her justice, she's a two-week sermon. So you're not going to hear the whole passage from the Gospel of John chapter 4 today. You're only going to hear a piece of it. And next week, if you're so inclined, you can hear the second part. And if you're not so inclined, perhaps you'll just be satisfied with the first part. That's perfectly fine, too. So this is John, uh, the Gospel of John, the last of the Gospels, a non-synoptic Gospel. It, doesn't, uh, it seems to have a different uh, take on Jesus, not completely alien from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the Gospel of John approaches Jesus in a different kind of way and seems to teach some different things about Jesus, which is why we have four different Gospels. Each one of them kind of uh, gives us an aspect. It's like if four of us went into a room and met Jesus. Each one of us, you know, if we're an emotional person, we might talk more about the emotions we felt. If we're a thinking person and Jesus did a teaching, we might really twist ourselves around, wow, what he had to say intellectually. If we're a feeling person, we might talk about, and by feeling I mean physically, bodily feeling, we might talk about what it was to be physically in the presence of Jesus. What it felt like when he held our hand, or when he gave us a hug, or when he looked us in the eyes. Each one of us would catch a different aspect, and the Gospel of John is completely like that. This story of the woman at the well is only told in the Gospel of John. Just like the story of Nicodemus, only told in the Gospel of John. We talked about Nicodemus last week. We're going to talk about the woman at the well this week. So I want you to listen carefully and closely to these words. And listen for what truth it may speak to you. And then I'm going to share with you what truth it spoke to me this week. So, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had learned, had heard, he was attracting and baptizing more disciples than John, John the baptizer, though it was not really Jesus baptizing, but his disciples, Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee, 
This meant that he had to pass through Samaria. He stopped at Sechar, a town in Samaria near the tract of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, weary from the journey, came and sat by the well. It was around noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The disciples had gone off to the town to buy provisions. The Samaritan woman replied, You're a Jew. How can you ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink, since Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans? Jesus answered, If only you recognized God's gift and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink instead, and he would have given you living water. If you pleased, if you please, she challenged Jesus, you don't have a bucket. And the well is deep. Where do you expect to get this living water? Surely you don't pretend to be greater than our ancestors, Leah and Rachel and Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it with their descendants and flocks. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty No, the water I give them will become fountains within them, springing up to provide eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, give me this water so that I won't grow thirsty and have to keep coming all the way here to draw water. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, you get the picture. Jesus' fame is beginning to spread. It's early in the gospel, and the Pharisees have heard about it. Uh, He's baptizing more people than the gospel of John, and John's already been killed at this point in the gospel because, of course, um, nobody appreciates their power being challenged by someone, and John the baptizer did just that, so they've killed him. And so uh, Jesus, um, Jesus being uh, Jesus, says... You know, it's not time to stir everything up here. The Pharisees are out to get me because we're baptizing as many or more than John did. Uh, Let's go back to Galilee. Go back to our home country. Well, the most direct way to get back was to pass through the land of the hated Samaritans. Now, Jesus didn't hate them, but the Jewish folks of the first century considered them to be... um, Outsiders. Outsiders. You you know about those? Anybody that we decide doesn't fit with us for one reason or another. Now, for the first century Jews, the reason, and for those prior to them that didn't like the Samaritans, the reason they didn't like the Samaritans is because the Samaritans had been the ones that during the exile had stayed behind. They hadn't been sent into exile. They'd been left in uh, in the promised land, and they had intermarried with local tribes. Impurity, impurity, impurity. We're all caught up in that kind of stuff. So they're now outsiders because they didn't stick to some kind of written purity code. And so they've already defined the Samaritans as outsiders and that they had nothing to do with each other. 
nothing to do with each other. That's, but Jesus has decided the fastest way to get home is to go through, uh, through that neighborhood. You know, that neighborhood, the one that you don't feel safe in, you roll your windows up uh, in the car, you lock the doors, you shrink down real low, you try not to stop at any stop signs or stoplights or even look anybody else in the eye, you just try to get through. That's not the way Jesus does it, but that's the way it feels. In first century, when someone would have heard this story, Jesus went through, Jesus went through that part of town? Oh my gosh. What happened? Did he get jumped? Did somebody, you know, rob him, beat him up? What happened? He went through Samaria. Now, of course, this isn't biblical. This isn't in the Bible. But this is the way people in the first century might have thought about this town, about this journey. But Jesus went the most expedient way because he wanted to get home. And maybe he had a purpose. Maybe he was on God's purpose and not everybody else's designed purpose for him. So through Samaria he goes. And guess what? For all of you who are busy thinking of just how divine Jesus is, you know, it's like he descended from heaven and here he is, he's just standing here, and he's just kind of an apparition. He doesn't have real human needs. Anybody who thinks that needs to listen to that little place where Jesus is tired and sits down at the well. Because Jesus whether we want to own it or not, is just like us, human. Now, he's fully human, and he's fully divine. And we can't get our heads around it, and if you can't get your head around it, good. Because you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be that kind of uh, enigma that you struggle with. How, do I, how could it be all human, and yet all divine at the same time? Well, we're not going to settle that this morning. Sorry, if that's what you were looking for, no settling. But Jesus was tired, fully human like every single one of us. And so what does he do? He does something most of us don't do when we get tired, which is he sat down and rested. A lot of us push through. I got things I got to do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired and I want to sit down, but I'm going to vacuum. <laughs> I'm tired and I want to sit down. Oh, I got to dust. People might come by. I don't know when, but they might. Anytime. I got to be clean. Got to be clean. I'm tired. I don't want to go to work today. Tough. I'm going to go. Uh, you know, I don't have enough days off. I don't have time to do this. I can't rest. Jesus models something completely different. When he gets tired, he rests. He's tired. He rests. Now, that could have been the end of the story. Jesus, tired, takes a rest. But instead, here in the middle of the day comes Someone to get some water. Now, maybe the woman at the well. You know, there are lots of scholarly explanations why she's there in the middle of the day. She's an outcast. Nobody likes her. She doesn't want to run into anybody else. Maybe she got water earlier today, ran out of water, had to come back for some more. You know, she wasn't as careful with the water, and maybe she got home with the bucket first thing this morning, and the first thing that happened after she finished making her breakfast was she spilled the bucket. Or maybe her child spilled the bucket. Or maybe someone down the street spilled the bucket. Or maybe she gave the water to her neighbor. Instead of making it a bad thing that she came in the middle of the day, let's just say what, what was up. She needed some water. And where do you get water? Well, if you live in our houses, for the most part, you go into the kitchen or the bathroom or outside to the spigot. You turn it on, there comes the water. Guess what? 
That does not always work. Mark Hayes, who was on vacation this week, was sharing a story with me that uh, he's out, he and, he and uh, Catherine are out at their cabin. And for three days this week, the well was down. It couldn't work. So they didn't have water for three days. You know, and, uh, you know, in the first world, we're like, ah, oh, my gosh, oh. And it's a first world problem. It's a first world. It's completely a first world problem. Can we just be honest with each other? There are places in the world where people don't have clean water to drink. We can walk in our living room or our kitchen or our bathroom and turn on the water. Do you know that the water in our toilets is cleaner? We use clean, purified water to flush the toilet. It's cleaner than in some places in the world the drinking water is that flows down the middle of the street. It's cleaner in your toilet, you know, as dirty as it is. I'm not saying go home and drink from the toilet, even if your dog does. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we use clean. We're, water is so freely flowing for us that we'll even use it to flush our toilets. We'll even use clean, fresh, pristine water to flush our toilets. Well, in first century, you couldn't just do that. You couldn't just turn on the, fa the faucet in your house. Even the richest people didn't have water that ran into their house. They just had somebody else to go and collect it for them. Servants. This woman needed water, and she went to the well. And that's all we really know about her. Sadly, we don't even know her name. Now, I find it a little challenging to me that she didn't get named. But if we're being really honest about the biblical context, a lot of women you had to really be somebody somebody knew, like Rachel or Leah, with a big story that was about you, or Miriam, or Mary, the mother of Jesus, or uh, Mary Magdalene. You have to have a big story for you to be named if you're a woman. Now, a man can have a walk-on part. Walking through, say nothing. Oh, look, there's blind Bartimaeus. He gets one little tiny story, and we already know what his name is, Bartimaeus. This woman doesn't get a name. And it's always irked me. And if you're a woman, it probably irks you too a little bit. Why can't we know what her name is? We know what Nicodemus' name is. He came to visit Jesus in the middle of the night. And apparently, he didn't even take Jesus seriously enough to understand what he was talking about. Here comes a woman in the middle of the day. She's going to have an in court care a conversation with Jesus. Her conversation even lasts longer than Nicodemus's conversation, and we don't know her name. And I've always spent a lot of time being irritated by that. But this week I listened with a different ear. And it's really easy for me, a privileged white man, to choose this way to listen. But I listen because she really is all of us. I don't know how many people are going to remember my name, you know, at this point in my life. And the truth is, it, it shouldn't matter to me. It shouldn't matter to me. Whether or not you remember who I am uh, at any point should not matter to me. That I told my story well, that I played a part, and that... You know, Maya Angelou said, you know, they won't remember what you said or even how you said it. They'll remember how you made them feel. That's a, that's a paraphrase of Maya Angelou. I think the same thing is. When I read this story, 
I, I don't know her name, but I know how she makes me feel. Because she comes to the well expecting to get some water, and instead she gets seen. She gets seen. And I, I want to say a couple of things, because this is what I saw in this story. And these are the kinds of things I'm hoping we'll take away from the story. First of all, she doesn't feel worthy. And it makes her defensive. That's what I heard. Defensiveness. What are you doing asking me for water? In the first century, men who aren't related to you aren't supposed to talk to you if you're a woman. And in the first century, if you're a woman that's not related to the man that's in front of you, you're not supposed to talk to them unless you're with a male member of your family. And she's not. So Jesus asks her for water, talks to her, and by the tone of his voice, she can tell he's not a Samaritan. Galileans were known for their accent. It'd be like if you showed up at the local store talking like this. People would think you were from somewhere else. Exact same thing with Jesus, except, you know, he was speaking Aramaic, not Southern English. Um, she recognized he's, he's Jewish. He's not Samaritan, and he's asking me for water. Doesn't he know he's not supposed to do that? We are different people from different stories. I'm a woman and a Samaritan. He's a Jew and a man. We are not supposed to talk to each other, accept each other, talk, you know, even share water, implements. And here he is asking me for water. So she gets defensive. Uh, hey, uh, maybe you forgot. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We're not supposed to share implements. You don't even recognize us as human beings. And by the way, we feel the same way about you. So what are you doing asking me for this thing? She's bold enough to speak back to him. But I hear a twinge of being unworthy. And that's how I feel when I talk to God. Unworthy. Do you ever feel that? God will love me if I measure up. If I'm the best preacher that's ever preached, God will love me then. If I am the best father that's ever been, God will love me then. If I'm the best husband, and I've dropped the ball many times on that. You could just ask Linda. 31 years, if I haven't dropped the ball at least once, well, maybe I'm Jesus. I don't know. So I know I've dropped the ball. And I could probably enumerate some of the times. But if I'm the perfect husband, then God will love me. And then Linda will love me. And if I'm the perfect dad, God will love me. And Hannah and Josh, my children, will love me. And if I'm the perfect pastor, maybe my congregation will love me. And not only my congregation, but maybe the bishop will think I'm an okay person. Like it matters. And my district superintendent, too. And my colleagues might all look at me and say, oh, wow. Boy, that James, he is in touch. If I were that worthy, then God could love me. And that's not the model that Jesus shows. Give me, I, I want some water. Could I have some water? What are you doing asking me for water? I am unworthy to provide you. From your perspective, I'm sure. I'm unworthy to provide you water. 
Why would you ask me? I'm a Samaritan woman, just in case you didn't know. Samaritan and a woman. Shouldn't be talking to me to begin with. And yet you're asking me for water. Jesus turns the conversation around. If you knew who you were talking to, you would instead be asking me for living water, the kind that will fulfill every one of your longings. Because this living water will well up from within you. If you drink this living water, it's not something you have to keep going to the well for. It is in you. That's what you'd be asking for. And the woman's response is natural. Give me this, woman. Give me this water. I don't want to keep coming back to the well. Now, when it comes down to it, I've already said, and maybe you, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe every single one of you online and in person, believes you are loved already. You already know, I am absolutely loved, unconditionally for who I am. I'm precious to God. Not just a little bit, infinitely precious. And I'm a gift already. I'm a gift already. Maybe you already believe that. But I suspect if you're like me, sometimes you have a hard time with that. And you're yearning for something a living water that will bubble up inside of you. And you see, that's what Jesus wants to offer this woman at the well and you and me. That's why the Gospel of John tells this story. Maybe that's why, maybe, maybe the writer of the Gospel of John knew the woman's name and thought he wanted to include it. And then in his second writing, his second notes, he just crosses it out. You know what makes the story powerful is She's every person. Every person is yearning to go to a well that will fill them up so that it bubbles up and never runs dry. And that's the power of love. But you and I have to first learn to be loved, and that was the lesson that the woman needed to learn, just to be loved, not to try to measure up to somebody else's image of what she was supposed to be. She talked back to a man. Not only did she just talk to him, she talked back. She gave him some stuff. What are you doing asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan. Open your eyes, dude. Get your own bucket. That's, that's you and me. That's, I'm, I'm her. You know, last week, I didn't like Nicodemus. Why didn't I like Nicodemus? Because he was me. When Jesus tells me something I'm not ready to hear, I fall right back on my literalism, my rules, the way it has to be. You can't love me, Jesus, because I haven't done enough sacrifices. I haven't counterbalanced. This week, I can't. Be loved because I'm not worthy. Like the woman at the well. Named or unnamed, we struggle not only to be loved, but if you can't feel that you're being loved, it's really hard for you to give love away, except conditionally. That way that you 
hold it back when you want to get your way. You know, I'll love you if you do the dishes for me. I'll love you if you clean your room. I'll love you if you do, if, if you vacuum. I, I never got those kinds of ifs when I grew up. But some people do. We're more, we find it easier to believe the bad stuff. You are a failure. You aren't good enough. You aren't a gift. It's so much easier to believe that than what is absolutely true. And if you're listening closely to these words, there's something deep inside of you that's vibrating. Yes, what I want is to just be loved for me. Not for how I look or what I can produce or how good I am, how eloquent I am. I just want to be loved. Because if I was loved, and you see, if you realized how loved you were, it would break open the dam inside of you. Of all the love you've been holding back because you were afraid. What if I love her and she doesn't love me? What if I love him or those other folks and they don't love me back? What's going to happen? What's, what's going to happen? So we dam up the endless river of love that God is pouring out through us to the rest of the universe. We dam it up like the woman. And then she encounters Jesus. And Jesus invites her to something more. I am here on Jesus' behalf this morning to invite you to something more. And the something more is to recognize that you're yearning to be loved and to be love in the world. And that not only are you yearning it for it, but you are it. You are love. And you are a manifestation of God's love in this moment. You might not be good at it yet. You might never be great at it. Certainly not like Jesus, maybe. But if you follow in his path, recognize the other, name or not, as a person worthy of love. Enter into that relationship freely and make connections. Connections. On Jesus' behalf, the world will be changed. Not might be, it will be. When you love, the world is changed. You might not see it, and that might drive you crazy. If you're anything like me, it does. I keep waiting for people to stop saying ugly things to each other because I love. But it's not that simple. And Jesus kept loving anyway. Now next week we're going to finish off the story. Because there's more to the story about what's going on with this woman. But this week I need you to just hear what Jesus wants. For you to know that he has living water that will bubble up in you and he wants you to have it. No questions asked. You are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved for the gift you already are. That's where we start. That's where we start.
I don't know if next week is going to be called Well Water Part 2 or something else altogether. Um, we'll see. But it will be, unless God speaks to me in some other fashion this week, it will be the rest of the story. The rest of the story.